we've said, this isn't a shakeup for how we've done things. This is a complete restart to how we build an ecosystem that is going to allow for us to be addressable, to be able to measure performance outcomes, but also do it in a way that's going to last. That's Leanne Nadeau, head of Precision Media at Digitas, speaking at RampUp on the panel Managing a Post-IDFA World. And this is Saying the Quiet Part Out Loud, a podcast from LiveRamp that uncovers what's unsaid about technology, data, and business, and explores how they intersect. I'm Daniela Harkins, SVP of Commercial Strategy and Excellence at LiveRamp. For those not familiar with IDFA, it's Apple's specific acronym for what the industry calls mobile IDs. They are used by publishers to monetize their apps and by advertisers to reach users. Next year, Apple will require apps to receive permission from users to access and use their mobile ID. At least in the short term, there will be an impact to the mobile experience brands and publishers create and curate. It remains to be seen whether people welcome the change or not. At RampUp, we unpack the topic with our panelists. Nola Solomon, VP AdSmart Programmatic, Advanced Advertising Products and Strategy at NBCU. Prashant Upays, Head of Product for Growth and Ad Tech at Uber. And Leanne Nadeau, Head of Precision Media at Digitas. Our moderator was LiveRamp's Travis Klinger, SVP of Addressability and Ecosystem. Great to have everyone here. So addressability, huge topic. We've been talking about the third-party cookie for three and a half years now. We've been talking about the IDFA. I think the rumors first started circulating uh, last June. Is the IDFA going to go away? When will Apple get rid of the IDFA? Now, early of 2021 is when Apple will make the change requiring opt-in consent for the IDFA. We don't know what the opt-in rates will be. There's a lot of speculation somewhere in the neighborhood probably of opt-out rates of 70 to 90%. This is going to have a pretty big impact on the mobile advertising industry, both from the publisher and the marketer side. Nola, maybe starting with you, what's your take on this from a publisher perspective? You know, What do you anticipate the impact to be? Addressable advertising relies on being able to identify users in order to serve them the right message at the right time and subsequently to verify that through measurement. And there are a variety of touch points that we use today, right? You mentioned the cookies, obviously IDFA. For mobile environments, it is the mobile ID, so IDFA for iOS. We assume a decline or in such a large decline of opt-ins there, then essentially we lose an addressable audience that we need to rely on in order to do those targeted advertisements. So we might have to shift towards less persistent metrics or probabilistic methods to target and to measure, as well as potentially leverage contextual, which a publisher like NBC Universal, we have some great premium content for contextual advertising. Unless that an insights means likely lower CPMs on these sites as you're unable to connect your, your data to that inventory so marketers pay less for it. Leanne, look at, at how you advise marketers. How are you talking about this? What's the, the question for marketers who have all of their data, who you know either have a mobile app and want to suppress those users or who they want to acquire mobile app traffic, new downloads, and also with conversion tracking? How are you approaching this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the timing of Apple's announcement was interesting because while 
We've been seeing cookie deprecation for a few years now. It really kind of came to a head this year when Google made the announcement late in 2019 that they were going to be deprecating the cookie by 2022. That's kind of what woke marketers up to what had been a reality on on Safari and Firefox for some time now. So the timing was actually a bit fortuitous, maybe, because we are in the process of reshaping how this industry is able to continue to do addressable advertising and measurement. And so to throw mobile into the mix right at the outset might actually be something that works in our favor because everything that's now happening on desktops and on web browsers is happening now on mobile. So as we think about advising clients in this new world, we've said this isn't a shakeup for how we've done things. This is a complete restart to how we build an ecosystem that is going to allow for us to be addressable, to be able to measure performance outcomes, but also do it in a way that's going to last. And for it to last, it has to have consumer consent at the core. So we're doing a few things. You know, the three buckets of opportunity we see right out of the gates is one, sorting through first party data assets, making sure clients have the right assets, but also that they were collected in a way that are going to be, it's going to be permissible in this new age. Two, thinking about relationships with partners like NBCU to start to think about context and think about other signals that might help us understand what impressions we want to buy based on you know who that might be and how much that impression is worth to us. And then finally, measurement. Like you mentioned, we're going to see a, an initial dip, I believe, in CPMs because we're not able to understand exactly which impressions are driving outcomes and which are not. It's going to be a real challenge in understanding where we should be putting our dollars And so we need to stand up cloud ecosystems that are going to allow us to start to think about measurement in a different way than we have before. Absolutely. So Prashant, I think you have the the perspective of both being a a large marketer, but also being a mostly app-driven experience. Can you share your perspective on this and and how this affects your business? Uber is a mobile-first company, so this has a large impact on our ad tech activities. And we spend more than a billion dollars on paid ads. Most of it is on mobile and our conversion funnels on mobile. So you can imagine how big an impact this is going to have on our user acquisition as well as user engagement campaigns. The biggest impact is on conversion tracking, meaning measurement. And if, you, if you're not able to measure your campaigns, you cannot optimize that. So that is the area we are compromised heavily. The best solution for us right now is, can we move our conversion funnel to mobile web and desktop web? We are actively experimenting with that there's a good chance we may ditch iOS app install campaigns altogether. We have seen some promising results with mobile web. The second impact is, and it is again equally important, is a user experience. That we offer a lot of promotions for new users. We also offer a lot of bonus and guarantees to our drivers. And if we cannot honor that between the, the marketing message that we show them on different ad networks to when they land on our, our site, that is a really bad user experience. We don't want to do that. So that is another big reason why we may altogether ditch iOS app install campaigns. Got it. And, and you bring up conversion. And I think uh, it's a huge point for a lot of the mobile marketing is in fact designed to get app downloads and then track those. And today that's done with the IDFA. Now we know that the SK ad network is coming out and Apple has kind of hinted at how that has worked. From your perspective, is that a viable conversion option or do we not know enough at this point in time? It's an option, but we should put a perspective on that. What SK Ad Network is, is just a counter. It just counts install. It doesn't do anything beyond that. And maybe Apple like intentionally designed it that way. So be it. Whatever it is worth, it's just going to give you count of install and nothing more than that. 
So that limits our ability to do meaningful measurement. That limits our ability to make choices. Which campus performance is much better than other campaigns? And then the bigger question is again. I'm going to go back to the user experience. We do a lot of promos. You might have used GiveGet promos. That if you refer your family members, and if they take a ride on Uber, they get twenty dollars. You get twenty dollars. We have a lot of messaging on bonus and uh, driver earnings. If we cannot honor that, we cannot run the campaigns. It's beyond measurement. It's beyond optimization. It's about user experience, and user experience is broken with this change. And there's no alternate solution. A SCAD network doesn't solve for that, so it's not a viable solution. Absolutely, I, I really like how you emphasize user experience. I think we often talk about the third-party cookie going away and the IDFA dramatically changing. And we talk about it in a perspective from the you know, the marketer side and the publisher side. But there's also significant user impacts. Nola, jumping over to you, how do you see the change of the IDFA degrading the user experience for folks using mobile apps out there? Not just mobile apps, right? It's also anything that's in the app environment, so Apple TV as well in this situation. But we have to think about the user from the outset and how it's affecting them first and foremost. How do we deliver a seamless, enjoyable experience if we can't identify who the user is? It's kind of like describing somebody that you've never met before. Plus, it affects different elements of the consumer experience. We mentioned frequency capping and targeting. But with frequency capping, for example, if you don't know who the user is, you don't know whether you've already served them a specific creative or a specific campaign on a single publisher site or across publisher sites, different publishers. And from a targeting perspective, a DSP may not be able to identify the user well enough to serve them a targeted ad at all, which means that the ads then are less relevant for the user, which is a loss for both the consumer and the advertiser and ultimately the publisher because it, it drives lower CPMs, as we mentioned before. The other thing that I think about when I think about user experience is that the opt-in button that we're supposed to show, right? So there's a lot of still to know and understand about what we're going to be allowed to customize there. But at NBC, we're a premium content brand where our viewers' data is always safe. And for others out there, that might not always be the case. And if you're thinking about a user experience with a pop-up asking for data collection... As a user, you might kind of be a little scared and be like, what are you going to use this data for? So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to how do we create an environment where we're protecting our consumers while also giving them the viewing experience that they crave and driving a real impact for our advertising partners at the same time? I see it almost as there's the short-term impact to what's going to happen. And then there's that long-tail impact. And so the short-term is, yes, less relevant ads. So while people don't like ads, we need to remind them that the reason you see ads is because there's a value exchange there. You're usually getting something free or for a lower cost because you're opting into advertising. So I think some of what happened with Cambridge Analytica and even Apple's new ads emphasizing privacy has degraded or made customers forget about that value exchange. So I think we need to re-educate on that. But as we think about the short term, you're probably going to get more spam because there's no frequency capping allowed. So there's less relevance to what you're seeing. Um, and I think that's going to turn people on to even greater blindness to advertising. So I think there's that kind of short term. But what you mentioned about opt-in is, is what I see as the long-term and potentially more grave impact is there's very few places that consumers are going to say yes. It is, And this same thing happened with location, where they're going to be willing to say, yes, I am okay with this person using my information to give me a better experience. And that's going to be the premium content publishers who have enough equity in that relationship to ask for that permission. I would argue Uber is one of them. But there's also this long tail. And the long tail isn't going to have that same equity. People aren't going to be as comfortable 
saying yes to that. And that's where you're going to see a real decline in opt-in rates. And we're going to start to see, just as we likely will with these in, in the desktop web, a really big gap between the premium publishers and the long tail of the internet, which just as consumers and as people, that is really a scary situation where we're limiting people's access to knowledge and information to very few and more premium content providers. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that all of these privacy changes uh, often make the consumer experience worse. So it's important that we put the consumer first, put privacy first, but also do it in a way that gives them the control without making them have to click through a pop-up every time, making them have to see the same ad every time. You know, frequency capping we often talk about from a marketing perspective, but I think all of us have probably also been annoyed when we've seen that one ad just way too many times. And it's like, can I please not see that ad again? But in the app world also, measurement is tightly correlated to suppression, making sure, hey, once the users downloaded my app and they're engaging with me, how are you guys thinking about suppression in this new world? So there's no way to do suppression on iOS post IDFA before sign up. Even after sign up, the match rates are so low. I'll take a classical example, Google, Facebook, or even third party publishers. The match rates are between 40 or 50%, even if you use hash PII. So suppression is compromised. There's no real solution there. We are actually, uh, as we're speaking into LiveRamp session, we are evaluating a LiveRamp solution to see if our match rate goes up. In absence of that, our campaigns are going to shift towards just a campaign which targets both new users as well as existing users. And the performance is going to be hard to measure, the grave implications of this. And that's why I've been like stressing the point that this has an impact on measurement, this has impact on user experience. So we may end up ditching app install campaigns on iOS altogether. We may just engage users, existing iOS users, and then try to target new users on our desktop or mobile web inventory. So suppression is compromised. As you mentioned, frequency cap capping is compromised. Overall user experience, the relevancy of message is compromised and measurement, obviously, conversion tracking optimization is compromised. No, I think that's fair. Leanne, how are you advising clients on this? You know, with all of these issues that we're hitting, so frequency capping, suppression, targeting, measurement, what should clients be thinking about? Is there a silver bullet to this solution or how should they be thinking about how to address these challenges? So no, there is absolutely no silver bullet. And I think that is really, really important for everyone to understand because one of the hardest things I think about being in an agency position right now is your job is to advise clients, but there's no surefire solution. I think we're hearing from an Uber perspective, like you just have to sometimes walk away from iOS. And so there isn't necessarily a, a solve. And to be quite frank, I don't think there will ever be one solve that's going to attack all of these problems from audience targeting, suppression, measurement, retargeting. It's going to be a cobbled together solution. I think what's also potentially a risk is that what might seem like the right solution right now is to go all in with the walled gardens and you just advertise on Facebook or you just work with Google for search or you put all your eggs in one of those baskets, you might actually be able to get a clear picture, but you're missing out on all of the open web. And so I think that's the other risk that we're trying to warn clients against is going all in with one of these walled gardens because the challenge is, like we all know, data goes in but doesn't come out. And so you're really putting all your eggs in one basket and not able to look at things more holistically. You'll be double on immersions in a Google privacy environment and a Facebook privacy environment. So I think it's really evaluation of where your most important channels are and how we approach those versus going all in. 
And Nola, you know, looking at it from a publisher perspective, what functionalities are you guys trying to add to keep marketer dollars and attract marketer dollars to in-app as addressability becomes diminished? You know, probably not going away, but certainly becomes a bit diminished in the in-app space. Yeah. I mean, it's all about first-party data. The companies like publishers and advertisers who have direct touch points with users, I urge them. and, And what we think about is authenticating with persistent identifiers as much as possible, whether that's email address or phone numbers or or whatnot, finding other identifiers that we can use and leverage, regardless of what the ultimate solution or solutions, because I agree, I don't think there'll be necessarily one that wins out amongst them all, but having that kind of basis and persistency that that is tied to first party identity is absolutely critical. And also taking the opportunity to educate your users and your consumers where you have these touch points, kind of going back to that opt-in, but also there are other methods in terms of the importance of them sharing this data for their own user experience, but also for the business that you provide them. It's interesting. There's a lot of parallels here with the IDFA and and third-party cookie deprecation. We were talking earlier, right before we joined this panel there, there's an ad tech bingo card that should probably be made for this panel of how many times we say cookie, IDFA, uh, and probably some other words to deprecation. What lessons are we learning from third-party cookies that we can apply to IDFA? And Leanne, coming to you, should marketers be looking at these as two separate problems, two of the, you know, one same problem? Should they be applying the same tactics or how should they be approaching this? I think the answer differs when you look at it from a technology perspective, by which we'd argue they're very, very different, and a philosophical perspective. I think the root issue that we can all agree is that browsers didn't just up and decide to remove these things. It was born of a consumer demand for more trust and transparency and control. And that, I would argue, is the root of both the cookie deprecation and the IDFA going away. So I think both of them are coming from the same place. And for that reason, both need to have the same solution in terms of consumer privacy at the core, opt-in, by and large, thinking about how they can get people to be more comfortable with the advertising and value exchange that used to exist. But the technologies themselves are, of course, very, very different. I think IDFA even had a lot of advantages over cookies by and large, because there was only one of them. You didn't have to try and stitch them all together. It wasn't different browser to browser. So I think the way that we build technology to solve for both is going to be a little bit different, but the way that we think about a solution has to be the same because it has to solve for consumer trust or else it's going to be the next thing that goes in, you know, ITP 6.0. There's no getting around it. And I think for a while, you talk about cookie ID and and cookies like we've been kind of at this for a while. And I, I really think that the industry woke up to it more after Google made that announcement, even though we know third-party cookies have been gone off of Safari and Firefox for a while. They have low enough share of the browser ecosystem that people kept charging forward with Chrome as their solution. But I think we need to now step back and kind of approach these two from the same way fundamentally, but largely with two different technology solves. I completely agree with that. I think we need to look at what's happening holistically and understand that these types of privacy changes are the new future. And it's not just happening in in months and years and weeks. It's happening by the day. And it's not just coming from legislation now. It's coming from companies themselves, such as Google and Apple in this case. Yeah. And there's an IAB quote that I love that came up with Project REARC, and I'm going to butcher it, but it says that the future of addressability must rely on consent between consumers and first parties. And that's either publishers or brands. 
I think we've tried to solve a lot of these challenges with kind of the ad tech middle. And, and Travis, even you would argue your average consumer off the street isn't in a position to say yes or no, opt into live ramp. They're like, who's that? I don't, I don't know what that means. It's got to be NBCU saying, consumer, I'm going to give you a better experience. Is that okay? And Uber saying, I'm going to give you a better experience. Is that okay? And then, of course, we need the live ramps of the world to make that all work once those two things are, are garnered. But it's so critical that brands and publishers start to get that consent and also think about what they're going to offer in return because there has to be some value exchange there. This has been a big topic of discussion within Uber as well, right? As we are still discussing this opt-in, should we even show this opt-in or not? And what is the user value? So the user experience that we've been talking about, that the user experience is compromised. We used to have these promos or relevant offers where we are going to lose the call, lose the context if they click on an ad. But can we provide some of these offers at opt-in level, at opt-in dialogue box itself? So that way we can communicate the value. I keep going back to location as the example, right? Because if you use Uber and you say no to location, the Uber can't find you, right? There is a very clear or weather. It doesn't know where you are to give you the, the local weather. So there are those apps that have just such a clear value exchange. And we need to figure out how we, one, determine that value exchange to your point, but two, communicate it in a way that lets people understand that their data is not going to be used in crazy ways, but also that they're getting something in return that they want. One of the disappointing thing with Apple's opt-in messaging, they have opt-in messaging, right? That Apple is basically telling users that the app, for example, Uber as a brand, if you decide to do opt-in messaging, Apple is like communicating to our users that Uber app will track you across apps and different websites, which is not the case. Our primary interest in having, like in, in identifying a click or ad exposure to a conversion is to do the measurement and to provide relevant offers. We don't share this data with third-party apps. We don't share this data with third-party websites. That has been a little bit disappointing that the way the opt-in message has been framed by Apple. I do understand, though, that there's a huge industry in ad tech where they do data sharing without materially improving user experience. Maybe they're addressing that, but uh, brands such as Uber who do not share data with third-party networks, it is a little bit disappointing and it's going to be a little bit hard for us to show this kind of opt-in message to our users. Yeah, and I think it brings a good question, Prashant. I've been talking with some brands and publishers who said, hey, we're not even going to try to collect the IDFA. We're going to focus instead on our, our CRM data and collecting our own authentication because you know the IDFA is, is governed by Apple's T's and C's, but we can build a CRM relationship separate from that. I guess maybe to both you and Nola, is that something that you guys have been considering as much as you can, can share, but you know, how are you looking at balancing your, your CRM versus also you know, now Apple's IDFA opt-in? Yeah, I mean, the way that I think about it is we have an opportunity here to reinvent the world of digital advertising and the industry at large in terms of how we approach this. And I don't necessarily think that there's any one way to approach it right now, given that there's so much that's constantly changing, but making sure that we are positioning ourselves for our marketers to be able to offer them the most value while also continuing to offer the value to our customers and our viewers. And in order to do that, that requires leveraging a number of different strategies in terms of how are we going to approach this rather than thinking about it only one way or the other. And for Uber, CRM, the old operated channel was always a big channel, right? Post uh, user acquisition or post sign up, 
We relied on those channels quite a bit. We continue to rely on it. But user acquisition is also a critical part, specifically with respect to Uber, uh, the Western hemisphere or Western, like Western countries. We are quite mature, but our growth is quite fast in emerging market. And user acquisition is critical. CRM and other channel cannot do anything there. So we have to go out in the wild. We have to figure out what are the best media channels in those particular regions or countries that we can rely on to drive awareness, provide messaging on what is the value that Uber is going to offer to them. And hopefully they, they, can, they can convert. Leanne, you know, you started originally in the panel with the philosophical discussion of, you know, why are these ideas going away? And so kind of to build on that, what's next? I feel like in AdTech, it's always like, what's the next shoe that's going to draw? So now we've had the third party cookie. We've had the IDFA. We've spoken about this is really due to the consumer trust issue. Do you see the Android ID going next? Where do you see the IP address? What's the next 12 to 18 months look like for us? I think it's kind of two buckets to that answer. One is is the Android question. And I think we can learn a lot from the way Google approached the Chrome decision and think about how they're going to also approach Android. I think it's funny if you look at the big four, right? Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google, and you look at who owns devices and, and browsers in Apple and Google, Google's the one who relies on advertising, right? To earn a large share of their revenue. So it's not too surprising that Google won was the last to join the party there and two, gave us a wide berth of opportunity to solve before they were actually going to put it in place in, in 2022. So I think, you know, some would argue that was really nice of them. Some would argue maybe a little more cynically that that's because they too need to make sure that advertising is going to have a, a path forward and, and keep the premium rate it's at now in this new world. So I would say we can expect something similar from Android, especially in the way that Apple's actually gone to market consumer facing with these privacy ads. I'm not sure if you guys have seen them. They're actually kind of funny, but also, you know, they're, they're intended to scare consumers and differentiate Apple from an iOS from Android and, and other devices to make them realize that, you know, Apple's taking their privacy seriously. So I think Android, Google, they have no choice but to follow suit. I would say it's probably going to be a little bit more of a slow roll, similar to what they did on Chrome. But your question about what else is going to go, I think it, it is realistic for us to expect that anything that can be tracked back to an individual or a user is going to go away. Because again, it all goes back to that same consumer trust problem. And so if there is a workaround that we as an industry have found, it would behoove us to recognize that, again, the next like ITP, ETP 2.3.4.0 is going to be able to find that workaround and stop it. Because we need to build something that's going to address the root issue, which is consumer privacy. So I do think there's a couple of providers and, and partners out there in the ad tech middle, if you will, coming up with solutions that do rely on those other identifiers as a way forward. And I think it's, it's really a little bit irresponsible for us to start to build solutions around them because I think they're just the next to go. I, I totally agree with that. I think at this point, privacy is a strategy. It's not just about compliance. And when we think about what are the identifiers that exist out there that we've relied on, the ones that we know and love, the clock is ticking on all of them and they will all eventually fall by the wayside. So hopefully what comes out of it is a more consumer-focused, privacy-centric method of transacting addressable advertising at scale that we all come together as an industry to create with some cohesive standards here. Great. Prashant, question is for you. Are you looking at using the LiveRamp ATS solution or some other solutions for your post-IDFA targeting? 
So we are actually actively experimenting with uh, LiveRap solution, not just ATS. They have two, three different solutions. We are experimenting with all of that. So that should allow us to engage as well as retarget some of these users. I should point out that one unknown that we have uh, is how broad this enforcement is going to be from Apple. Because if you look at their tracking guidelines for developers, it seems it's not limited to IDFA. Their, their guidelines are broad. So if you are using hashed PII to do retargeting, do we need to take consent? That still needs to be answered. We are actively trying to get answer for that. Also, as an app developer, we need to like display this information on App Store that if you are tracking users using hashed PII for retargeting, we also need to make a decision on that. that should we be doing this? Apple will do enforcement. And also overall, without taking consent, should we do this in first place? If the general consensus is that we need to take a consent to do any of that, then we'll have to go for consent and then this will hamper uh, overall our retargeting capability. But LiveRamp solutions, the initial test shows that our match rate goes up. So, so far so good. As long as we have a clarity from Apple, how broad the enforcement is going to be, that will ultimately decide how where we go from here. And Prashant, just to add to that, because we got another question kind of similar to that, you know, LiveRamp's view is that CRM consent is different from the IDFA consent. The IDFA consent is restricted to the device, whereas if you have CRM, that's covered through the consent between the, the user and the publisher. So, for example, I could have an Android device and an, an iPhone, and I would have Uber on both. And so my relationship would be with Uber or with NBC, not necessarily with those device IDs. So we are actively encouraging both publishers and marketers to get consent at the user level versus the device level. But I think to your point, it's one of those questions out there. We've taken an interpretation of it. I think generally we're seeing that in line with the large social platforms, but still something that probably will be determined a bit in the future. And when you say CRM consent, do you include targeting users on third-party surfaces as part of CRM consent? Yes, but only using the CRM data, not using any of the device data. I think that's the important caveat is, you know, you can use your CRM data to then match to a publisher CRM so that Uber could target a user on NBC's apps or or their display sites, but then not using that device data for that. So we are actively discussing this with our peers. So good clarification here. And maybe our legal privacy would work with your legal and privacy to see where we land. Absolutely. Leanne, a question for you. Retargeting spend, how do you see that being impacted post-IDFA? Is retargeting still going to exist in the mobile and app world? Like we just heard, it's going to depend how far Apple goes with the regulation. But if things go the way they're looking, no, no retargeting an app will not necessarily be a, a part of any marketer's strategy. I do think that differs from what we see on web and some of the cookies going away. I think that'll start to build back up as more first parties gain consent to have that relationship. But I do believe in the, the IDFA world and the iOS world, you do need some sort of identifier and device ID. And in the mobile web world or and in the you know desktop web world, we're going to have first party cookies. Those are still going to be in place. And that's something we can build like LiveRamp is building a framework around. But in mobile, without that device ID, there is no first party cookie or any cookies in app experiences. So no, I... I don't believe that's going to be possible. And I think we're hearing even advertisers like Uber considering shifting more of their investment to web to make sure they're able to continue to give good experiences to those they're retargeting. But no, I, I don't think it's going to be possible. And so Nola, one question we got here is as you're looking at identity, who are the key partners that you're looking at to connect your different identity assets? So 
you know, along with, with LiveRamp, how do you see the trade desk and Credio fitting into this? And then are there other partners also that you see? Is it kind of like there's going to be a group of partners? There's going to be one partner, hundreds of partners? What's the future look like? The way that I think about it is evaluating all of the solutions that are out there and how they're similar and how they're differentiated and where they plug the gaps or kind of overlap with the the data we already have. I believe there will be. I don't. I, as I said before, I don't think there's one solution out there that you know rolls them all. But they're all addressing, as far as sort of I've been able to see so far, um, slightly different areas of the marketplace. And so in that sense, they're all very interesting to evaluate and understand. How do you integrate with them? How does that work with these third-party partnerships? But also as you think about developing our own first-party identity solutions as well in tandem. Prashant and Leanne, anything to add in that and how you're thinking about partnerships here? We have not taken any active steps in this regard. Mostly, as I mentioned already, LiveRamp and other solutions is what we are evaluating. We have not explored any partnership yet. Yeah, and I think for us, it's similar. As we think about the partnerships that we have now, yes, we're developing those, we're digging in, we're seeing who's going to be future ready and who might not be. But we're also kind of faced with these new partnerships we need to really establish. And one of them is with the browsers. We really haven't had a relationship with browsers before. But I think there's even new players emerging like Brave who might have a solution that we need to start to consider. So I think they're popping up as someone else we at least need to be close with that maybe they fell in kind of the background for us before. And I would also argue that on the partnership side, we're starting to think about what do partnerships look like both inside walled gardens and outside. And I think that's something that, you know, most marketers are going to have to take a really critical look at is to what extent do they want to be invested in the gardens and versus outside in the open ecosystem. And that's going to really dictate some of the partnerships as well. So those are kind of the lenses we're taking to our partners, but absolutely working you know, with those existing and then those potential new partners that weren't necessarily on our radar before. A bit of a controversial question here. Do you see brands using solutions on one side of the bidding equation? such as Trade Desk, Unified ID 2.0? Or do you think solutions such as ATS are a better, more neutral solution that isn't partial to one side of the business? That is controversial. I actually would argue that both LiveRamps and Trade Desk solutions are kind of on, on the buy side. I mean, yes, LiveRamp has partnerships on both the sell and the buy side and is, is being that connecting pipes. I don't know that I would say that either solution is fully baked yet because the industry is still playing catch up to say one is better than the other. I think it's going to be an and not an or. I will say in terms of what I know about the trade desk solution, what I appreciate is that it one doesn't cost money. Two, it is something that is built around IAB's project rearch. So it's not something that's only going to work with them. And that's what the value I see so much in what LiveRamp has brought to bear is the ability to be kind of the Switzerland across whoever you're buying through. And I think LiveRamp has also taken a really awesome position as being just that connector and respecting that the first party relationships have to happen by brand and publisher. So I, I think that both solutions have a lot to a lot of room to grow and, and a lot of room to help advertisers and, and publishers as connectors. Perfect. And Jen, just to call out for the audience as well, you know, we, we are committed to being interoperable with Unified ID 2.0 and are actively collaborating with the trade desk on that. So we, we would agree they are complementary and in no way competitive. With that, we've got just one minute left. In like 20 seconds, what would be advice you would give to the audience? What's kind of one thing they should take away or do after this session? Nola, do you want to kick us off? 
Yeah. I mean, I would say as you're thinking about your own businesses and the companies that you represent, do you have direct touch points with the consumers in in some way or another? And if you do, what are the solutions that you are putting in place for that first party identity collection? And how are you going to, in your backend, aggregate all of that so that it's actually actionable? From from Uber's perspective, we are we are thinking about it from first principles perspective. Can we make sure that the user experience is not compromised? If we can deliver on that, then we can preserve the value of a user and hopefully then marketing campaigns deliver. And I'll say, because I saw a question I loved in the Q&A too, that says, are we basically going back to, to the 90s here? I'll say that going back to fundamentals isn't a bad idea. I think we almost were a bit irresponsible with the data and the technology and the ability to hunt down users that we created this mess. And and this is a response to kind of what we were doing with that data and doing with those ads. So going back to things like context and general reach frequency buying and, you know, using lift in sales as an indicator that marketing is working, I don't think those are all bad things. And so I, I would say, yes, we, we are, you know, in some cases going back to what we used to do. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Awesome. Nola, Leanne, Prashant, really appreciate you joining today. As Travis mentioned, the Trade Desk's Unified ID 2.0 is now interoperable with LiveRamp's identity infrastructure. You can read more about our expanded partnership in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Saying the Quiet Part Out Loud, and be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts.